how we live our life and how we see all the things in this life. I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So when I was a young teenager, around ninth grade, I found myself slowly creeping from the back row where the cool kids sat to the front row. And I could still barely see the, the chalkboard. I just aged myself there. Yeah, chalk was still legal back in the 90s. And it got so bad to where my teacher asked me to tell my parents that I needed to probably see an eye doctor. So I went home and said, oh, my teacher thinks that I need to go see an eye doctor. Mom's like, okay. So I went and saw the eye doctor, and um, I was pretty blind. And I got fitted for glasses. And I remember um, the dread of the glasses, but at the same time when I put them on, uh, just how much they changed everything. So my ride home, I still remember a little 13, 14-year-old Eileen um, looking out the window, and I could see things like the grass. I could read road signs. Um, there were different colors that I had not noticed before. And uh, as I got closer to driving age, the most important thing was I could see other cars approaching me at night. They weren't just one big white blur coming at me. So glasses really improved my life dramatically. When I got back to, to class after those glasses, I could take, resume my spot back in the back with all the cool kids. I probably shouldn't have. And other things started happening that I noticed that I didn't even think were related. I would, I would have a weekly headache, which I thought was allergies, it was actually ocular headaches caused by me straining to see all the time. Those went away immediately, which vastly improved my mood, vastly improved how I felt. So something as simple as glasses changed my entire life. But after having worn these glasses for so long, I've realized how dependent upon them I am. So once kids arrived in the Harrison household, I, I had to make a point of putting my glasses exactly in the same spot every night. Otherwise, when one of the boys would wake up and I would be startled awake and it was my turn to go check on the child, if my glasses weren't right where, they, where I thought they might be, I was blind in the dark. And there's nothing worse than hobbling through your house trying to dodge toys quietly so you don't wake up your, your spouse, who's also dead tired, and, and having to, to, to get there without sacrificing your pinky toe on some crazy kid toy. So I've realized that I have to put my glasses exactly where um, they need to be so when I wake up, for whatever reason, I can put them back on so I can see so today, I want you to think of faith as like a pair of glasses that God gives you. I want you to think of faith as these lenses that you can see the world through, a new way to see everything, a new way to see your friends, your job, your life, your hobbies, your loves, your hates. We look through these lenses to see everything. Now, not everybody has faith. Not everyone claims a faith, but everyone looks through the looks at the world in a specific way. And this is what is often referred to as a worldview. 
Everyone has a set of lenses they look through at the world. And the the way they look at the world shapes everything they do. Today, I want to present uh, the argument that God's glasses or the faith, the Christian worldview, is a better lens to look through. And we're going to walk through um, Hebrews 11 uh, to, to, to do that. So the question I want you to just hang around in your, in your brain is this. What is it that you really have faith in and how is it affecting the way you see everything around you? So our scripture for today is Hebrews 11. The main um, three verses, the first three verses are the main verses I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get our uh, teaching from, but I'm going to refer to the whole chapter, plus a couple of verses in chapter 12. But we're going to read the first three. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So I want to tackle the definition here. Our author is good enough to start his chapter with a definition. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So I'm going to take this in two parts. First one, faith is the assurance of hope. So the Greek word here is translated to assurance can also be understood as substance. So the author is saying that faith give substance to that which we hope in. So it's not just a flippant, ah, man, I hope that happens. There is a confidence that the things we hope for are a future reality. So it takes faith to give hope substance so that we can confidently grab a hold of that hope in the present before the things we hope for happen. Now, faith, or sorry, hope without faith is like a lottery ticket. I hope buying this lottery ticket changes my life, but it probably won't. The second part of the definition is the conviction of faith is a conviction of things not seen. A synonym for conviction is belief. So we can interchange the word conviction for the word belief and, and say that, that belief, we have the faith is the belief in the things that we don't see. And the Greek word here carries a sense that uh, the belief in things that are not yet seen. So hope with faith then is like a bus ticket. We have um, substance in the things we hope for and the belief in the thing that hasn't happened yet. It's like purchasing a bus ticket to go home. The ride might be long. You may get annoyed by fellow passengers The scenery may be good or may be bad, but you know the ticket says home and the bus will get you there. So this is how we understand the Christian definition of faith. Is there a substantive hope and a belief in the things that haven't happened yet? So I want that to be our operating definition as we run through this. So we keep going here. Later on in verse 2, it says, For by faith the people of old received their commendation. 
So this is kind of telling us what faith is for. So we have to talk about who these people of old are. So there's a list in, in the rest of the chapter of all of these people from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what uh, the author of Hebrews would refer to as the scriptures. Um, and it's just a list of people who had faith in God. They looked through God's prescription lenses so that they could do what God called them to do, so that they could live by a substantive hope and follow God so that they can do or long for and follow after the things that they couldn't see yet but know was going to happen. So what is God's prescription? One way I like to understand it is uh, through the narrative of Bible chapters in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. What this does is it pieces out the entire biblical narrative into four chapters that explains uh, the good news of Jesus. So we're going to run through each of those in relation to our topic. So by faith, we believe that the universe was created by the word of God. This is verse 3. And I think this is a very good uh, illustration that the author uses here because this is, uh, creation is something that man has wondered about since the beginning. They look at the stars, how'd they get there? They look at the order around us, well, how did the bird learn to do that? You look at agriculture and the way seeds are designed to germinate and bloom. All of that's order, and that raises questions. Well, how, how did that happen? The Bible gives us um, the truth about it. So, the author reminds us here that the visible universe was not made out of equally visible raw material. Now, this is a sticking point for a lot of modern people. They say, well, yeah, yeah, what about uh, science? What about evolution? What about theories such as the Big Bang? Doesn't believing in an intelligent creator, deity, make you kind of uh, ignorant, or isn't that kind of medieval, if you will? Well, normally, when I get on this topic, the big question that a lot of younger people ask is, well, what about the Big Bang? And my retort, not being a scientist, that is not my wheelhouse, um, is, well, to me, it takes just as much faith to believe in the Big Bang as it does to believe that a deity caused it. And then another conversation ensues. But to summarize, I, I found a scientist who is also a pastor, and he, he walks through a few of science's laws to help explain verse 3 of Hebrews 11. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase what he says here. Um, we can see how the lens of faith helps us see the laws of science illuminate the need of a creator God. Conservation of mass states that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. So, where did matter come from? There's no scientific law nor test nor observation that can validate nothing creating something. This is not an argument for or against evolution. This is before that. And the Big Bang Theory offers no scientific explanation for nothing becoming something. According to this theory, something had to come from nothing, unless there is something outside this universe that created the mass 
from nothing. Conservation of energy states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Energy could not have existed for eternity's past, so it must have had a beginning. The Big Bang offers no scientific explanation for nothing creating energy. Again, according to the theory, for energy to exist, it had to have had, had come from nothing, which violates conservation of energy, unless something outside the universe created the energy from nothing. Our last law for today, the second law of thermodynamics, tells us that the order cannot come from disorder in a closed system. The universe has a phenomenal amount of order in it. So where did it come from? If the universe is a closed system, then the scientific laws insist that something outside of the universe must have added it in. So if you trust in these laws, they all point that space, time, matter, energy, and order must come from something. They cannot create themselves. However, there is nothing in the known universe that can create them. So, it would require something outside the known universe to create them. So our author here in Hebrews 11 points to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. So let's consider Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beginning, that's time. God, that's something outside the universe. Created. That word in Hebrew literally means to make something out of nothing. The heavens is space, earth is matter. So God, outside the universe, created time, space, and matter. What happened next? God said, let there be light. That's energy. In the very next verse, he separated the light from the darkness. That's order. Time, space, matter, energy, order. How is it that Genesis 1, written over 3,000 years ago, gives a direct explanations for the problems brought up by the laws of science today? It's pretty amazing. So Chris, Chris Langham is a pastor who was once a scientist who uses his love of science to connect faith all the time. And, and he did a good job summarizing here of, of how and why the author used creation as an illustration for uh, the faith that we're talking about today. So I'm not a scientist, but I love stories. If you continue reading in Genesis 1 and 2, God adds a cherry on top. When he creates everything, he looks at it and he says, man, that's good, but something's missing. He looks at his creation and he realizes that it needed something more. So he created humanity, created us. The only piece of creation to bear God's image. It was the star. It, it was the the centerpiece of his beautiful project. And he, it was the only creation that received uh, a job to rule over other pieces of creation. And then he gets to say, or then he chose to say, creation is now very good. So what we see here in the first chapter of creation is a God outside of our known uh, universe makes everything, and he makes it a specific way, which is very good. Now we're on to chapter 2. The fall. It doesn't take faith to realize that 
whatever was is no longer. We look around our world, uh, we could take a five-minute uh, view on one of our uh, media stations and see the world's messed up. And it doesn't seem like our efforts are doing anything about it. Even our best efforts fail to fix problems for a while. So the fall tells us that everything's broken, but how do we get to that point? Well, we see in Genesis 3 that um, humanity has decided and believed the lie that they're going to be the ones that rule. They're going to decide what is right and wrong. They're going to ignore the one that created all things so that they could do for themselves. Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie and followed their want to be their own king and queen. And they fall. And this is passed on to all of humanity, and we're incapable of fixing it. This is pretty bad news, so I'm glad the story doesn't start, stop there. So as we continue on in Genesis 3, we see a, a hint, God hinting at what he's going to do about it. So he sits uh, Adam and Eve and the, and the crafty little serpent down, and he begins to uh, dole out his punishments. Like a good father, he told Adam and Eve, Here the, here's the rule, one rule, don't do this or this will happen. Now they've done this, and he's got to sit down and say, okay, because you did that, here's the punishment." But he starts with the instigator first. He looks at the serpent and he tells the serpent, because you have done this, you will one day be destroyed. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to send a seed through humanity, specifically through the woman, and he's going to crush your head and you'll bruise his heel. So he's hinting at this planned redemption. He's given us a piece of what he's going to do to make things right. This is why redemption stories resonate to the core of everybody. It's why Marvel's a billion-dollar company. We love hero stories. You know? The world power of evil comes about. This little skinny dude from Brooklyn joins the army to do something about it, gets picked to be injected with superhuman juice, gets all swole, then puts a ragtag band of misfits together and they go off and they save the world. We love that stuff because it's ingrained in who we are. We long for the redemption because we know there's evil and brokenness and we can't do anything about it. We need a hero. So this leads us to asking the question, who's the hero? Who's saving the day? Well, Scripture points to... The fact that God is the hero, that God is saving the day, and he's doing it in a very specific way, and faith helps us see what he's doing. We look through the lenses of faith, and we see God doing all this stuff. We see him sending Jesus down. We see Jesus living in complete reliance upon his Father. We see Jesus going to a, a death that he did not deserve in, by any means. And we see something miraculous happen, which takes a lot of faith to believe in. After he died, he came back to life. And he ascended, and he sits on a throne. And he, in that action, he became the hero 
that saved the day. He put death to death. He stopped evil from being anymore. Now, the problem with the fall is evil and sin is inherent in every single human. And it costs something to get rid of. There has to be a sacrifice to atone or to to pay for sin. And Jesus did that. But not every person, like I said earlier, believes that that action is real. But when you do put on the faith glasses, when you do look through the lens and you see Christ and what he's done, and you receive that action, that payment for your sin, you become aware of all the things that he's doing around us and in us and through us. And it's in that you begin to see all of the restorative actions of God through Christ. So that leads us to our our last chapter. Restoration seems like a fairy tale ending that's never going to happen, but through faith we believe that it's going to be a reality that God has promised. We see Christ and what he's done. He's redeemed us. We've received that faith. We become a part of his little team of misfits who work towards redeeming others through uh, speaking the truth of Christ, through doing the actions of Christ, all the while longing for the restoration of all things to come. And we could see this because of the, the hints that God planted in our souls in Genesis 3. I'll fix it. You mess it up, I'll fix it. This is the same faith, the same lens that the heroes our author listed in in Hebrews 11 had when God called them to their specific journeys. It was by faith that the people of old received their condemnation, or commendation, very different. Condemnation is the wrong word. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to summarize the, the heroes into little groups. Um, this isn't the only way or the only things they did. It's just how I saw it and how the author uh, put them together. So our first group is Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And by faith, they lived with righteousness and faithfulness according to God, and he commended them or he approved of them. Then our second group, by faith, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac believed in God's impossible promises. Abraham and Sarah were old and tired. And when God said, I'm going to start a nation of people that outnumber the stars of the sand on the beach with you two, they're like, what? But they believed him. It was hard, but they did believe him. Sarah specifically had a battle of faith and doubt. I love her story and how she's included here. Because she believed God at the same time as having doubt. I'm old. How could this happen? And even messed up and said, okay, Isaac, God evidently doesn't understand that I'm old. So start your nation with my, my concubine over here. And then God's like, no, no, no. I literally meant you. She struggled with faith and doubt. And then with Isaac, Abraham walked with Isaac up the mountain knowing that God had asked Abraham to sacrifice, to kill Isaac on, on the, the sacrificial platform, I forget, the, the altar. And 
It took faith to believe that God's promise was still true. I'm going to start a nation through Isaac. So Abraham was like, somehow, God's going to give me Isaac back. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I have assurance of my hope, substantive hope. And I don't yet know how he's going to do it, but I know he will. And they get up there, and he's mid-stroke with the knife. Isaac, by the way, just as faithful because he's on the table, right? And then God says, no, 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 don't do that. Here's a lamb. I know where your heart is now. You trust me. Jacob, Joseph, Moses' parents, and Moses and the Israelites all trusted God or trusted that God's promised provision was better than their present possessions or circumstances. So they trusted that the future coming of what God has promised is better than what I got now, even though that's not as safe. So I'm going to go and trust God and do this hard thing because I have faith that it is better than my safe little place here. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight because they believed and trusted God through faith. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves in the earth. That last little paragraph is about the church and the faith that it takes to follow God. Now, in that faith, it also points out what you are capable of enduring because your view, your goggles, are focused in on the future promise, future eternal promise, and not the, the temporary circumstances of this life. So those last few verses seem extreme, and they are, but it's a testament to the type of faith that God provides. Verse 39, we see that word commended again. All these, we're included in that, the church, all these are commended through their faith. But the people of old didn't receive the promise yet. And that could be confusing. That confused me at first read. I was like, wait, what? They did all this stuff. No promise? But what is the promise? God wanted to provide something better for us. That apart, meaning that apart from each other, people of old and people now, should not be made perfect. He wanted them together as one to be made perfect. So the something better here is providing access to himself. The people of old had access, but it was a limited access. It was through sacrifice. It was through the temple. It was through a priest. They had to come, be clean, tell the priest, tell God this. The priest would go back and tell God that. Come back and say, all right, you're good for a year. But Jesus came, and he was the sacrifice. He was the priest, and he gave us access to him through his death and resurrection so that we could go to him whenever, so that something better is Jesus. 
That something better is direct access to the promise. And God wanted everyone to have that. Now, that's a little confusing to look at the people of old saying, well, Jesus wasn't born yet, technically, if you look at chronological order. So the way to understand this is they were looking forward to the promised Messiah who God proclaimed was Christ. So they were looking forward to Christ like we look back to Christ. Same faith in the same person with the same promise. So then we we skip into the first two verses of 12 here. The author encourages, encourages his church and us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great, great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I'm not a runner, but I know runners, um, and I know the training for long-distance running. I'm not talking about like a three, 3K, 5K kind of like, I could probably do that now. I'd die, but I could probably do it. I'm talking about marathon-type runners. They train a lot, and they take a lot into account. Their clothing, their shoes, their food, um, their terrain, the weather, because it matters, because their race is long. And I've heard by like mile 15 or 20, um, if you've trained right, you hit a euphoria, and then it's almost like you, you, you are propelled by something other than you. I've never experienced that because I like couch better, and I own a car, so... But the author's connecting the, the life, the Christian life, to the illustration of running because it's hard. You need to train. You need to know what to do, what to wear, how to eat. And you have to look through the, the lens of God to see what is needed for the promise of God, for this journey you're going to go down. So to say it plainly, faith gives us eyes to see how we live a life pleasing to God. But learning to live this way is a journey, a lot of failing forward. Like the heroes that came before us, we too need to train ourselves to keep our eyes on the finish line. So who do we look at? How do we do this? Well, our last verse here today The author says, by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that the people of old looked forward to. He's the one that we look back to. He's the one that is alive right now, seated wherever heaven is, waiting on the time to come and finish redemption and usher in restoration. Jesus lived a perfect life, faithfully dependent upon God when he was on earth to show us, to found for us an example of how to live with faith. And he did, it, he did it perfectly. He perfected that faith. Where Adam failed, he succeeded. Where Adam passed on a lineage of death, Jesus offers an eternity of life. Where Adam returned to dust, Jesus put death to death and is sitting with God right now, 
waiting on the faithful. Putting on God's glasses can make you look like and feel like sometimes you're wearing crazy goggles. This is because Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom. Strong is weak. First is last. Last is first. The king of the universe came down below us to save us so that he could rule us. And he changes the way we view life if we put faith in this truth. So this is how God's lenses changes our view of life, how we can view everything differently through creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But the last little piece that helps me in those days when it's hard to do that is how does God see you? God sees us through Jesus. So I I used to explain atonement, which is a fancy word that means um, payment for, to to youth with an illustration. In Florida, it rains a lot. If you go up on a fourth, fifth story building and look down when it starts to rain, what do people pull out? Umbrellas. If everybody down there pulled out an umbrella and you look down, what do you see? The people or the umbrellas? You see the umbrella. People are still there. So in this simplistic, admittedly, metaphor, Jesus is the umbrella. Viewing from the fifth floor is God looking down on those who have been covered by Christ's sacrifice. So God sees us through Christ's action and love. And how does Jesus see us? As that jewel of the masterpiece as his beloved bride that he's willing to die for, that he's willing to wash white as snow so he can introduce her to dad. He sees us as a beloved. He sees us as a mighty church. He sees us as the ones whom he works through to usher in redemption and restoration. The band of misfits, the Captain America, if you will, gathered. We are important to Jesus. So these are the lenses that change the way we view everything. Faith guides our eyes to the reality of the things that are not yet seen. Faith encourages our hearts in a substantive hope, a hope of substance that is is so real that we can taste it even though it's not here yet. It's the bus ticket, not the lottery ticket. It brings a confidence to enter in hard times, do hard things, even look at death in the face joyfully because you know what the promise is. That this life is fleeting and the next life is eternal. It helps you love the unlovable, even your enemy. It helps you sacrifice greatly even when you could have many, many things so that others might have. Jesus. So how's your vision? Are you ready to see clearly? Is this making sense? If so, Jesus is ready for you. Put your faith in him and proclaim, I was once blind, 
but now I can see. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share. I thank you that you work through us, that we're part of your, your plan, that you take great joy and pleasure in building your kingdom through your people. I pray that these words would make sense, that whatever nuggets of truth need to stick, they would, that whatever challenges need to arise, that people would chase them. And I pray for more faith on my own and in the people of the Grove. I pray that we would become